0: And if we can take care of our most vulnerable people, aren't we more spiritually enlightened? Aren't we more in a whole as a group of people? Aren't we less just talking heads? And so, how do we invite ourselves to the actual practicality of what we're talking about? That this isn't just this isn't just thoughts. These are human lives that are at risk, and there are more coming because of these floods. When I was at COP27 speaking about the food system, I met people whose nations were gone. They're off, they're not, they don't exist anymore, they're underwater this human movement that's coming is going to be like unlike anything we've ever seen it's already started so how do we practice right now with what who we have right now who's been discarded through our colonial capitalist cosmologies how do we organize to get them all what they need
1: welcome back to the sounds of sand podcast from science and non-duality today we're offering two conversations from our guest dr rupa myra the first is from january 2023 And it's an excerpt from a S.A.N.D. community conversation hosted by S.A.N.D. co-founders Zaya and Maurizio Benazzo, And they discuss Dr. Mara's most recent book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. These community conversations offered to S.A.N.D. members and the community are a way to connect live with authors and presenters like Dr. Mara And they're hosted on Zoom, and usually there's a chance to bring and ask your own questions. So you can check out more about our upcoming Community Conversations on the website scienceandnonduality.com. And just as a reminder, if you would like to donate to S.A.N.D. and become a S.A.N.D. member, you can access the archive of previous Community Conversations with presenters like today's guest and also people like Bio Akumalafe, Sophie Strand, and Dr. Gabor Mate, you can find out more on our website about becoming a member. And speaking of Gabor Mate, the second conversation in today's episode is moderated by Gabor, and it's from the Talks on Trauma series from the Wisdom of Trauma launch for the film launch back in 2021. And Dr. Mara is part of a panel of physicians on this one. And the panel is entitled, How Trauma Literacy Can Transform Medicine. And Zaya Maurizio will introduce Dr. Mara in the first segment, and again with the full panel of doctors in the second segment. So let's get into today's episode on the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to science and non-duality. What is non-duality? The
2: universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external
3: event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection
4: from ourselves. That
3: matter is energy, energy is matter. That's what EMC squared
5: is about.
4: There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But
5: if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite
2: potentiality. Yeah. As a start, we would like to read a formal bio, just to, you yeah.
5: For those who might not know, no, although I doubt. Yeah, that. Probably
2: so, yeah. Rupa Maria is a physician, an activist, a writer, a mother, and a composer. She's a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where she practices and teaches internal medicine. Her works sits at the nexus of climate, health, and racial justice. Dr. Maria founded and directs the Deep Medicine Circle, a woman of color led organization committed to healing the wounds of colonialism through food, medicine, story, restoration, and learning. She's also a co-founder of the Do No Harm Coalition, a collective of health workers committed to addressing disease through structural change. And she's also a musician and has toured the world with her band Rupa and the April Fishes. And Rupa, together with Raj Patel, she co-authored the international best-selling book, Inflamed, this is an awesome book, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Justice.
5: And Rupa, welcome, welcome to, to the SEN community space. Welcome here this afternoon already, afternoon with us.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that warm introduction. I'm not sure how many
5: people have read your book, but we thought maybe we'll start by... I love that your book ends <coughs> by you mentioning your own personal journey. That really touched me. So I thought maybe we'll start this conversation with that guide leading towards the content, some of the content in the book. So I was wondering, what was your own journey? What led you from being a medical doctor in a in a very rigid Western framework of medicine-oriented paradigm led you to this journey, to where you are today, to see well-being and illness and disease as part of a web of relations, that the illness and our well-being doesn't reside only in our bodies, but is interwoven with our web of relations.
0: Yeah, I think that it's something that has been a theme throughout my life. I was born and raised in occupied and seated Ramatush territory, which is across the bay from where I'm sitting right now. I'm sitting in the occupied and ceded territory, Puchin, Ohlone territory. And I was born in what is now called Mountain View before there were Googles and Facebooks and all that. And my parents were Punjabi immigrants. And my father, when he came to the United States, was studying at the University of New Mexico. He was studying electrical engineering at that time. And when he came here, he was so struck by what happened to the indigenous communities here. Because this area, India, was also colonized by Europeans, but they didn't do the same thing that they did here. It really pained him. I wouldn't consider my father... A radical but he definitely radicalized me he definitely opened my mind because as a child we were growing up lower middle class family our family vacations consisted of my parents packing us into a VW van and driving around the western United States and when we would get to an Indian reservation my father would always stop the car and ask us to go outside and talk with people and just really have this constant dialogue with us about look what happened here look what they did here and how that contrasted with what happened in India and so from a young age I was very just Moved and peaked by thinking through what actually happened here. When you we went through fourth grade education in California, <clears throat> we learned to make these dioramas of the mission system, but they don't describe the mission system as the site of genocide, of mm-hmm. genocidal violence towards the California native populations. They didn't describe to see what was what was happening in that way. And so I went through my childhood in this education system a little bit at odds with what I was seeing and hearing from my family and what I was experiencing, what I was seeing and feeling by being just a sentient being in these areas, sitting in oak groves, walking in the bay trees, walking in the redwoods. Um, There's an undeniable presence here in this area that doesn't fit with the strip malls and the the highways and the Silicon Valley that we're seeing in front of our eyes. And so it was going through college and growing up with my grandmother, who was a healer in her own way and exposed me to Ayurvedic medicine and my family exposed me to both of these things. My father was a scientist, but he was also deeply spiritual and he never saw those things as diametrically opposed in any way. And so I grew up as an artist. I grew up wanting to be a physician, wanting to be a healer. And it was this just insistence about, about not simplifying my identity, about not making myself convenient to any interpretation that really created the fertile ground to be able to see the things that I was seeing when I was on the road with my band and touring. And when I was in the hospital at the bedside of patients, starting to notice patterns and starting to notice who was getting sick and how people were getting sick. Um, so that was really, it's been a lifelong journey of noticing patterns and disparities and asking just very naive questions. Like, why are things this way? How did they get to be this way? And do they have to be this way? What are other ways that they could be? Wait.
1: Yes. <laughs>
6: Sorry.
0: Sorry. So I was wondering, I know this is a huge topic, but what are some of the
5: patterns you started noticing that started opening? And these are, of course, patterns you don't learn in medicine. And as a doctor, you are not trained to see larger patterns than patterns, perhaps, in the body. And not even that, perhaps. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I I think about this work sometimes, about the importance of playing music and having an artistic practice. And I just want to say that because there were periods throughout my medical career where I was playing music three hours a day. And it's a very, before I'd wake up, I'd wake up and I'd just play and write. And having a practice like that opens your mind to seeing things in different ways. And my colleagues started to notice it when I was a medical student, like some of the ways that I diagnosed things were a little different. And they'd be like, wait, how did you do that? Or how did you see it that way? And I realized that part of the looseness in my ability to see or the way I was able to draw connections or draw connections and then let them dissolve and draw other ones. There was a fluidity to thought that I really attributed to music because that is how I feel the way my brain feels when I'm writing music. It's also a way my brain feels when I'm meditating or in the ceremony. Um, And so what are these states of our minds that we can access when we give space to our non-flatness of ourselves and that can influence the way that we do our work in this world, however that work is defined. And so what I started to notice when I was on the road with the band and I would use the band we would travel and we'd do these big festivals throughout Europe and the United States and other places and then but what I really like to do was go into these art houses or to go onto the street or go into the we were in India we went to the Tekra slums in Ahmedabad and then played with the children there during Diwali and we're doing a lot of work to see how society and health were interacting and if I had gone as a researcher with my stethoscope and my clipboard I would have had a totally different experience. But I went with my guitar, and I went with my bandmates, and I went with music. And then so people interact with you differently. And so all of a sudden, you're in someone's home, and they're wanting to show you their community. They want to show you and share with you the stories of what's happening in those spaces. And that's really where I started to notice, wow, I'm starting to see these patterns of people who are on the bottom end of oppression. And for me, I was starting to notice patterns I'd see in Ireland with communities there that were similar to what I was seeing in India, which was similar to what I was seeing on the Indian reservations and for Native people here in the United States. And and that started to coalesce, I was like, it's almost like there's like a syndrome of being colonized, where people are overexpressing certain kinds of diseases. So I was calling it for about five, 10 years, like a colonized person syndrome. And then what we come to see in the science over the last 10 years, last decade, especially, is that a lot of these diseases that we were noticing were diseases where chronic inflammation was playing a role and playing a role in the onset and development of the disease. And that's where I started looking more carefully with Raj. When I was invited to UT Austin to give a lecture on my work on racism and police violence, because that's what I was Really interested in is how, you know, when someone gets shot by the police and in the United States, it's disproportionately Black and Brown people. Yes, you can look at that one person who died, but then what's the ripple effect? And what's the ripple effect when there's no justice for that killing? So it's state sanctioned violence against oppressed communities. And what is the history of policing? And how does it recreate? dynamics of power that have been a couple centuries old in these areas. And so as I started looking into that, I started seeing that these disease patterns were repeating. What we're seeing with adverse childhood events, what we're seeing with exposure to police violence, what we're seeing in these different contexts are chronic inflammatory diseases. And so that's where Raj and I, when he heard me give a lecture on this at UT Austin, he says we have to write a book together. And so that's where we started the journey, the three-year journey of writing our book Inflamed. And how
5: does it feel now on the other side of these three years? Is I know when I read your book a year ago, it felt like so new and fresh. And now, a year later, it feels a little bit more like it's become part of our collective conversations. Do you have that feeling as well that it's actually uh, making
0: a movement through our collective?
5: I'm starting to see
0: more people cognizant of the ways in which trauma and the exposures, the additive exposures, are creating chronic inflammation in the body. And I think that's a really important connection to make. Because when you look at the health disparities with black and brown people in the in places that are being set along dynamics of white supremacy, such as the United States, you realize that racism and structures, racism is a structure, it's a systemic thing. It's not just someone hurting someone's feelings. It's the reality that certain people's lives are circumscribed to have poor health. You realize that is a form of biological warfare. And it becomes extremely critical to push back on... on forms of power that would make that cemented. And so it's been very challenging for me in the wake of George Floyd, the promises of 2020 never materialized. We've seen the pushback on history being taught both from the right, like we don't even wanna talk about critical race theory, let's not even talk about these things, and on the left where it's let's try to whitewash this narrative a little bit and make it more comfortable and palatable to everybody so we don't actually have to do anything. And that's where on both sides, you can see this lack of wanting to change the actual structures of power. And that's what Raj and I were writing about in the book is that we're not gonna see different health outcomes. We're not gonna see the world stop being on fire or flooding for that matter, until we start changing the power structure. And that's really, you know, that's what, that's the seed that we're hoping the book will get enough water and keep sprouting.
5: And what are some of the power structure changes that you see in medicine that are needed to to help our individual and collective well-being, which is interwoven?
0: I don't think that they are exclusive to medicine. I think that there is a very big, you can't tweak one without tweaking the whole thing. For example, you have to abolish the logic of borders, let's say. In order for people who are here to have access to medicine um so i took care of one of the patients who inspired me to write a whole album and learn spanish este mundo was a young youngish woman in her 50s who felt a lump in her breast and didn't seek medical care for many months and by the time she came to the hospital there was cancer everywhere and when i asked her like when did you feel this she said eight months ago i'm like why didn't you come to the doctor i was so afraid of being deported that i didn't want to be separated from my family This political reality made it so that this person was alienated from their own sense of what they knew they needed to do for their health. That the physician, the doctor, the medical complex was seen as a part of that violence of a society that polices the movement of bodies. But bodies, people have always moved. And now look at climate change. Like the false notion of nation states and borders is going to make the suffering from human migration even greater than it already is. People are fleeing unreal circumstances and then they can't even access a space where they can be healthy and safe and take advantage of the abundance that we have to offer as a human species. And so it really is, yeah, we can look at medicine. Yes, in medicine, we should probably, you know, get rid of the C-suite, for example, and we should get rid of the for-profit medical industrial complex. We should get rid of pharma having patents. Like it's insane that we have a vaccine that can make COVID harmless for so many people. And millions of people died in India in spite of that vaccine being available. Like I lost 20 relatives myself. And that was simply a matter of Western greed. And that's part of the capitalist structures to create manufactured scarcities instead of living in a world of abundance. We have the knowledge, we have the science, let's use that in service of humanity instead of in service of profit. And so it would have to go through that kind of structure. Can you like decolonize a hospital is a question. Can you decolonize the hospital? No, you can't. You'd have to like really literally burn it to the ground and start with something better, ideally on a farm, right? You'd have to build something a lot better. But should you engage in the struggle of decolonization? Absolutely. Because if you don't, you are tacitly accepting the violences that occur on every day within, within the medical industrial complex, which is part of the colonial colonial terror project been going on for a couple hundred years.
5: It seems like this is the time where we're living in, which we see the madness of the paradigm we've accepted as normal. And at the same time, we have to keep some hope. We will not be able to dismantle that monster in our lifetime, but there's something, some steps, some hope that can give us Like the balance to to see what we need to see and to keep hoping, not just hoping, but making steps for changes. It seems like this is really the energy of this time. Uh, Can we say this is, again, a large parallel, but is there any connection? You could say that the climate collapse on a global scale shows us also what has happened to us, to our collective well-being. Is the climate collapse a mirror of our collective well-being, which we know is not in a very we're not in a good shape collectively, like our youth is struggling with addictions, with suicide, with all of this. Yeah. You...
0: yeah. So we talk about that in our book. The connection that in, indeed that our lack of our broken relationships to one another and to the earth our, our broken senses of duties of care to one another and to the earth, to the web of life, to which we belong are the illusion we're living under that we're somehow separate from it or separate from one another, that my health doesn't depend on your actions. This Insane public health policy we're seeing coming from the CDC and even from the heads of the institution I work at UCSF that oh we're just on a you do you phase of a respiratory pandemic that that doesn't exist like you can't you do you through a respiratory pandemic you have to do we do we keep each other safe we keep each other well and healthy and that is not a narrative that is co- cohesive with the colonial capitalist ideology which really seeks to emphasize the individual, which atomizes the individual and leaves them shorn of their historical and social context. Um, And that's the way doctors see patients in our medical framework. But in fact, people are part of webs of relationships and their illness or health is dependent on how those relationships are intact or broken very directly. And yes, absolutely, we cannot abuse the earth and expect it to show up for us in a way that will be generative of our health and well-being or sanity. Um, and so it is absolutely a, a wonderful moment to be alive because the diagnosis is very clear. It's screaming at us. The challenge is to awaken in all of us the ability to act collectively to start moving these power structures.
5: And of course, this knowledge about well-being extending to all our relationship is a knowledge that any indigenous culture around the world have known for thousands and thousands of years. It's nothing new. It's the reality of modernity and how we have accepted medicine is due to the past 600 years of the acceptance of scientific model of thinking and rational thought and the individual versus the collective. So it seems like we can't even talk about individual well-being without seeing the full picture, the the extended web of religion so if do you see it's possible that one day when i go to a doctor the doctor will ask me where do i live what is my community how do i celebrate how do i grieve before they even diagnose me with whatever Medical label they give. Do you see that as a possibility? Is this something you hold?
0: Yeah, I would see that the doctor would know how you do that thing because they're a participant in your community. That you are actually a part of a community in which that that doctor, that healer, is a participant. So they wouldn't have to ask you because they would know. Or they may ask you specific questions, but they would be engaged, ideally, in again a web of relationships within that community to support the health of the whole system. And so it's interesting though. Like when I think about what you were saying, I recently had an experience where. I went to give a talk at this organic institute, the Rodale Institute, organic agriculture in the United States. And they asked me to talk about my work and I talked about the history of colonialism interrupting our relationships with each other, relationships with the soil, relationships with the land with one another. And that when colonial patterns came in and changed the ways we related to each other, change the way we made our foods change the way we practice our medicines that something was lost that we are now suffering the. that we're seeing the outcomes of what happens when those things are lost and that we need to actually repair those things to have whole systems health not just health for me as an individual but health for the ecosystem health for the ways in which we create our food you can't for people talking in the sustainable food movement they can imagine a taking care of the soil while still abusing their workers The people who buy organic food to protect the temple of their own individual self not thinking that oh, actually when I buy organic food it means a farm worker is not going to be exposed to those pesticides that's why I'm going to buy organic food I've never really heard anybody say that and so people do it for themselves and that's a very interesting but I gave a talk and one of the leaders of that institution came to my friend I don't think he was my friend and said why is this person going on about colonialism men have always murdered men and raped their women so to this person he can imagine the end of violence against soil but can't imagine a world with no violence towards women And when I shared this phrase that he said to my friend, Namonte Nenquemo, who's an indigenous activist of the Warani people in Ecuador, I'm like, can you believe he said that? He said, this is exactly the problem is that the mind in the West has been fractured. They don't see that the violence towards the soil is the violence towards women and that the violence towards women and children is the violence towards the earth, that those things are the same thing. You can't have a world where you dissect these things and think you can do harm to one without harm to all. Um, And so that really is, the reunification of the spirit being mind mentality that is a hallmark, not just of indigenous cultures, but any culture of sanity. That's a culture of sanity is understanding that you can't do that. And so it makes me suspect of these organic farming people and these sustainable agriculture people. Like what are you doing it just to advance a greener capitalism? You can't have a capitalism that's going to take us into a better direction. You have to just set it to the flame and take what's grown in the ashes.
5: Oh wow. And yet, how do we live day to day? We are ourselves, I am colonized. This is all living in me in layers upon layers. And the moment I step outside, I'm faced with that reality. How does one walk that path in a way that we can make a difference? And we don't also how do we begin to heal without the the guilt and the shame and the righteousness that we can see emerging as well is part of the collective trauma actually but what
0: is the balanced way that we start dismantling and yes i think that's a beautiful question and i don't think i have an answer except to know that it isn't something that one can do alone um that we have to do it together and that's the beauty of it that we can't actually un- we can't unfuck the world by ourselves And that's and it is actually in the work of collectivity, in the work of mutual aid, in the work of service to the other, whether that's to the soil, whether that's to the person in our community who's sitting on a tarp because our world is so screwed up that we would rather let 6,000 people sit outside in floods and rain than open 30,000 vacant units in Oakland. Just open the door and let the people in. Open the doors and let the people in. And so that is how do we as people get to the place collectively where we just demand, go to those doors and open those damn doors so the people can come in. What is it about us that we have a prioritized fetish of private property and the rights of private property over the rights of people who are literally sitting in a flood right now down the hill in Oakland or in San Francisco? And so that's what I've been, those are the things that I think of most most simply. It's not so esoteric. Oh, I have, I don't think it's helpful for anyone to wallow in guilt and shame. That's not what this is about. It's more like, how do we, put ourselves to service for the healing of these relationships that have been fractured to the point that we can walk past someone and not stop and say, how do we get you into a room? How do we get you safe? And that's not, again, to let our governance off the hook. It's to actually put the heat on. You mentioned that you're writing also an article for Nature. That's a huge thing that
5: Nature is asking you for to write about decolonizing medicine. So there is something. Are you feeling hopeful? Are you how does it feel for you to be asked that or do you feel it's just a lip service for something that feels also very fashionable right now and we are using that word and that's also a little scary because it can be another one of the traps like with the yoga and meditation
0: now we have decolonization that we have yeah you know, yeah, I think that these places will always try to co-opt and try to be relevant in social movements when they see, especially the young people coming into medicine who want more, want something different. I think that it's challenging to write about decolonizing the medical curriculum, because if I were to design a med school, it would be first of on a farm and you would not be spending the first year learning anything but the anatomy of injustice, as we outline in our book, the anatomy of how our societies have been created to predispose certain people to health, to take away the autonomy and the voices of our patients, to to make people not the experts in their own lives and their own bodies, to situate the dynamics of power in medicine, which are... They are echoing the same colonial dynamics of power so that they become literate in that because no one's actually taught that in our society. And once they become literate in that, then you teach them, this is where the spleen is and this is how this works. And there's a value to Western science. I wouldn't throw it away. I wouldn't say, oh, this is terrible. We got to throw it away. But how do we invite more narratives, invite more science, invite other ways of knowing and being to create a much more robust whole system of knowing with better explanatory power and that it requires expanding the peers of peer review, that it requires bringing into the fold people with lived knowledge and experience to be our partners and scholars in how we do things and bringing patients forward to tell us why they're sick. They always know why they're sick.
7: It seems to me that at the end of the day
2: what you're saying it's not even only about medicine, because if you teach the, the people who want to become doctor, put them for a year in a farm and explaining you know, all this, they will not even work. Yes, we, we should do this in, at every level of school from the first grade to prepare people to be member of society and be able to change every aspect of the society, because just medicine by itself, apparently, you think can just medicine itself change? Or...
0: Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, you're absolutely right that we have to embrace a transformation of our society. It's nothing short of revolution, which is reexamining. The ways in which we do things and putting things to the side that don't work and they're actually creating harm and poor health for people
7: yeah
0: and there is this also dependence that is created on this what we've
5: accepted as a healing today is that you have to go to the doctor like over and over again we were filming in the nation and i would never this woman she was working and she knew the healer of the community for many years and she was assisting him and she said uh, he see, he used to see a person one time, he would give the medicine and that's it. She said, now she was working in a clinic. I see these files upon files for each patient and there is no end to the healing where yeah. it didn't used to be like this. The medicine man knew exactly what was needed to this human being at which time and that was healing. I was just, it's the juxtaposition of these two paradigms it's so far apart.
0: Yeah. So we have a sick care system in the United States. I, I work in a hospital. I love working where people are very sick. I'm, I, it's my talent. I'm good at taking care of families and patients through severe illness. But when you see how our system works, it's not there to support your wellness. It's like what you're talking about is the supporting of wellness. And when I speak of my friends who live in very like almost uncontacted indigenous contexts, the medicine is something they interact with every day. It's something that, and it's not just given by a doctor. It's something that you have a relationship with all your different kinds of medicines. Coming together in community and having conversation is a kind of a medicine. Grieving, as you mentioned, that's a kind of a medicine. And so there's, there's rituals and there's ways of infusing those things with meaning that are very powerful and very different from how we treat things in a Western context, which is again, shorn of narrative, shorn of context, like you have a protein and a gene and here's your medicine for that. Whereas when you look at COVID, like why do people get sick in different ways with this bug? What's happening in all these different contexts that the virus is finding itself? Those kinds of things are important. Yeah.
8: Thank you.
0: Beautiful.
7: Thank you.
5: It a, it's a beautiful place to actually complete our conversation. This is the work of our day. And it's not, I think, yeah, if you can spotlight us, Riley, too. And it's not one or the other. And it's not linear. And it's not like we so want to know how. And let's just fix it and move on, right? But no, that's the time is to sit with all of this. Not to sit, dance, put fire. All of it, all of this we are called to embrace all ways of.
0: You no, know, one of the things I just want to share that I'll never, I've been writing about this and thinking about this, There's a moment where when the pandemic hit where I thought, "Okay, now we're going to get everybody inside. There's 8000 people outside in San Francisco. Now we're going to do it. And no, we didn't do it. Okay, they opened up some hotel rooms, but the mayor blocked getting everybody inside. So then it was the time of the Delta surge and it was spreading again. People were dying. And then their AQI, the air index was 460 hazardous to human health. And I thought, "Okay, now we're going to do it. Now we're not going to just let people languish outside. We have to get them inside. And the reality is we didn't. And in, in that moment, I was in the hospital and discharging patients who had nowhere to go. And there were more patients coming into the emergency room, so it was impacted. So it was this moment of moral distress where I was forced, I became an agent of the violence that I abhor, where I had to sign the discharge order to put someone out who had no place to go. And that to me, it is a sign of how, where we're at as a people, that I had a failure in my own imagination. I reached out to my colleagues. I'm like, can we collectively organize to do something so we don't discharge these patients? They're like, well, we can't because there's all these patients coming in. So like the whole system was crumbling and then you're standing there and you're acting as an agent. And for me, that moment is, was very painful. It's like when I think about the last two years and, and I really sit with the trauma of my experience as a frontline healthcare provider, that moment was my failure to engage my own imagination about what it means to be in a world I want to see. What does it mean to disobey violence? Because what was being asked upon me was violent to my patient. It was violent to anyone who had to be out in that, war, in that air. What was being asked upon me highlighted the violence of the mayor of San Francisco. And our complicity as community members here of not demanding that everyone gets inside. right? And so that's where I am just sitting and meditating on that right now. How do I not show up the way in alignment with my values? How do I? What does it mean when I don't do that? And what can we do to safeguard ourselves? So that when those things happen as they are right now with this flooding, that we can activate and push. So this is a tremendous community here of people who are like-minded. What is this community doing to activate and push so that those people are safe? And if we can take care of our most vulnerable people, aren't we more spiritually enlightened? Aren't we more in a whole as a group of people? Aren't we less just talking heads? And so, how do we invite ourselves to the actual practicality of what we're talking about? That this isn't just, this isn't just thoughts. These are human lives that are at risk and there are more coming because of these floods. When I was at COP 27, speaking about food system, I met people whose nations were gone. They're off. They're not, they don't exist anymore. They're underwater. This human movement that's coming is going to be like, unlike anything we've ever seen, it's already started. So how do we practice right now with what, who we have right now, who's been discarded through our colonial capitalist cosmologies? How do we organize to get them all what they need? And yeah, it's each and every
5: one of us to be to want to know because it's people who are released from hospitals, but it's also young people released from foster care. They have nowhere to go. They just turn eighteen and they're on the streets. There is, we can't wait for a system to be in place, but if we can help that one young person, that's an act. Yeah, that's a small step or the same. So that's it's grim, and yet that's the mood of our time. We have to hold both the grief and the pain and. Look for those small steps that we can relieve and care that's what i love about your book that the word care it's there and care is part of our healing and well-being and that's what we need to practice care um, that's a spiritual practice as you say yeah Introduce our next panel, which is on how trauma literacy can actually help us transform the medical paradigm. And we have a wonderful line of guest speakers. Yes. And the first one is Jeffrey Rediger, who is a physician, best selling author, and a popular speaker. He's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and the medical director of McLean Adult Psychiatry. Jeffrey is a board-certified psychiatrist and he's, he has also a Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. What an amazing combination. combination of degrees. His research on individuals who recovered from incurable illness has been featured widely. And Jeffrey's best-selling book titled, Is Cured, Strength Your Immune System and Heal Your Life, has been widely and loved and appreciated and it has helped many Welcome, Jeffrey.
7: And then we have Dr. Rupa Maria. She is a physician, an activist, a mother, and a composer, an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where she practices and teaches internal medicine. She's a co-founder of the Do No Harm Coalition, a collective of health workers committed to addressing disease through structural change. And she's also part of the Farming is Medicine project, where farmers are recast as ecological stewards of rematriated land and food is liberated from the market economy. And on top of it, she has toured 29 countries with her band, Rupa and the April Fishes. Thank you, Rupa. Welcome back. Welcome back.
5: And we have the pleasure to have with us Dr. Vio van der Veer, who is the co-founder of Integrative Psychiatry Institute, which trains doctors to recognize and resolve an ex expanded spectrum of root causes of mental illness. His clinic in Boulder, Colorado provides integrative psychiatry and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. Emphasizing the role of trauma is a key unrecognized cause of a wide range of human suffering is a central message of his clinical work due to in part of his personal journey. Welcome, Will.
7: Yes. (laughs) And then, (laughs) last but not least, we have Pamela Weibel, MD. Dr. Pamela Weibel is a family physician born into a family of physicians who warned her not to pursue medicine. (laughs) She soon discovered why. Because to heal her patients, she first had to heal her profession. Mm -hmm. Fed up with assembly line medicine, Weibel held town hall meetings inviting citizens to design their own ideal clinic. Open since 2005, Weibel's clinic, community clinic, has inspired American, Americans to create ideal clinics nationwide. Pamela is the author of three books on physician trauma. Welcome, Pamela, it's such a joy, everyone. welcome everyone. Wow, well, we have five MDs for this conversation. <laughs> In one <my> room. We're- <laughs> I feel better already. <laughs> so, Gabor, thank.
3: Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Good day, good morning, wherever you are. I know we're being watched all across the world. <clears throat> I'm very excited about this panel because we get to look at something very close to my heart which is both the problems and the possibilities inherent in, in, in medical care. And three of you I've come to know and actually interviewed for my next book. Rupa, I didn't interview you for my next book only because your book came out after I finished writing my next book, but it's a wonderful book, Inflamed. I'm going to be asking you about that. Um, ben, I'd like to start with you because, um, as alluded to in the introduction, you've had quite a personal awakening. And, and you went to medical school and, and uh, then you started practicing medicine and you became suicidally depressed. And then you had this awakening which transformed how you practice medicine. And you told me when I used to, you do that, in your wildest dreams, you said, you, you never thought that after jumping through all the hoops of medical school, you'll be funneled into seven minute visits like a widget, treating your people like, your patients like widgets. So I'm going to ask all of you to be both uh, as eloquent as you all are and as also as brief as you can be, but Pamela, if you can just tell me an encapsulated version of your own awakening and what happened to you in medical school afterwards and how you transformed your practice.
6: I think I had the dark night of the soul moment after all of that education and realizing that at the end of the rainbow, there was just a, like you said, a seven minute visit where I was expected to somehow heal people. I'm definitely one of these holistic, emotional, spiritual healers. And I felt like I was not able to use my gifts with my patients. And then as a result, I ended up suicidal just because of the occupational damage to my psyche. And and I thought I was the only suicidal physician physician in the world until years a few years later, when I opened my own practice and ended up at the funeral of the third physician who died by suicide in my town and come to realize, doctors are reported to have the highest suicide rate of any profession, even higher than the military. And by my early 40s, I lost 10 colleagues to suicide, including both the men that I dated in medical school. And these were guys that were successful doctors with wives and children. And it made me ask why, what is going on here? We enter medicine as these idealistic humanitarians. I'm sure we all, all of us here were like that, and hopefully we still are. But then Our mental health is on par with our peers when we enter med school, and soon we have three times the rate of suicide of our peers. And I guess in summary, as an introduction, I'd just like to say that our work and our working conditions are traumatizing, and they're leading us to occupationally induced PTSD, depression, and suicide. And if we're that wounded, the question is, how can we help others? I never in my wildest dreams thought my patients would be my peers and my colleagues. (laughs) It's just startling
3: thank you I'll come back to your experience afterwards because, because you had this wonderful vision that you've actually realized and quite an inspiring story of what's possible Jeff I remember when I was talking to you first after I, I became familiar with your book by the way it looks like the subtitle of your book has changed because it, 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 it's cured and the subtitle you said would be science of spontaneous remission did they change the subtitles when they brought the paperback is that what happened
4: Yes, they did. <laughs> they changed to emphasize
3: the problem with chronic inflammation and in the immune system. Okay. okay, I thought it was a great title to start with,
4: but. Yeah, many know. people have said that.
3: <clears throat> Jeff, when I talked to you, you told me that. Let me use paraphrase or, or preface this. The, the, the three things that medicine splits they split the emotions from the physiology, the yes. the body, they split. The individual from their relationship when it looks at looking at illness, and they split everything from a larger social structure. And Jeff, when I first talked to you, uh, you said that to talk about mind body medicine at Harvard is to jeopardize your career. Those are your words. At least until very recently, you said it's changing. Can you talk about how, how you became aware of the mind body dimension to health? and what the difficulty is in speaking about it in the medical world?
4: Yeah, historically, there's always been such a huge chasm between mind and body. And so, it was fascinating. Even when I started doing this research, I would find medical reports in the medical literature about these unexplained healings, and doctors would collect some of the medical evidence, but they would never ask what was going on in the person's life. They wouldn't ask, what's the did you make any nutritional changes or psychological changes, then the psychologists, when they would write about these kinds of reports, they wouldn't look for medical evidence. And so just that piece of it, there is this mind-body chasm, and that's just a little piece of how physicians don't talk to the psychologists. Historically, the psychologists don't cross the chasm to talk to the Physicians, And so we end up with a situation where there's a big misunderstanding. We send people with a medical problem to see the physician, people with a psychological problem to see the psychotherapist, people with a spiritual problem to see the priest, rabbi, imam, or minister. But if we don't all take a step back and look at the bigger picture, or if we don't help patients step back and look at the bigger picture, Then we're just working with these pigeonhole problems and don't understand that the power of healing comes from the way these all come together in a lived life. And there's so much we can do to help people activate all of those capacities together at a much higher level than we typically do. And so that's just, it's very exciting that now every day there's research being done from both sides of that chasm, mind and body, to bring these worlds together. But it takes so long for research to actually change the way medicine and psychotherapy are practiced. So we still have this divide that is too big of a deal. Things are changing, but it's just really slow. Thank you.
3: So, Bill, that will take me to you and uh, for a long time. You founded this institute really to uh, educate psychiatrists. By the way, I hate to say this, but when I hear about somebody being a board-certified psychiatrist, I met a lot of psychiatrists, and I really think a lot of them should be certified. But that's <laughs> <laughs> especially,
4: yes, we specialize in our deficits. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a lot. That's another issue. But
3: well, you told uh, as much as we know now that so much really psychiatric problems, like I'd say, virtually all, originate mm-hmm. and end trauma. And yet you told me that in your medical education, and I think this is true for all us here. The word trauma is barely even mentioned. How did you come to realize the connection between trauma and mental health conditions, and what is in your path to to bring that into the medical world?
4: That's a great question. It's so fascinating that we have yeah. our medical hospitals down the road from the psychiatric hospitals.
8: Jeff, and I'm that's so sorry. A
3: Jeff, I'm so sorry, but I was asking. Well,
4: oh yeah, sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's okay. I mean, I'm, it's great, but I just want to go, do, go
8: around. Okay? So. I'd love to hear what Jeff has to say about that question too. Yeah. Uh, like Pam, I've had a personal journey. And I think when innovations happen in medicine, it, I think oftentimes it happens when a person has a personal journey and they're not willing to go along with the dominant paradigm anymore. And physicians who take a stand for mold poisoning typically had a mold personal journey, for example. Mine is more of a trauma journey and not understanding until well into my 30s that the reason I had so much difficulty in relationship was trauma. Believing that, my childhood was a sort of normal childhood. And I did have a lot of privilege. And at the same time, there was incredible adversity and distress. And so the nervous system that I had was very much a trauma nervous system. And for a long time, I thought that going to psychotherapy, which I did a lot of, and learning how to meditate was going to be enough for me to make that journey. But it turned out that that wasn't enough for me. And I needed a a deeper way of understanding healing. And that's what led me to your work originally, Gabor, was looking for that deeper way to get underneath what for me is a really hard shell on the outside.
3: And in your own training, of course, uh, as a psychiatrist, uh, you didn't have much exposure to this strong perspective, did you?
8: No. PTSD was what we learned about. And for our, in the training, it was all about, you're a veteran. If, you know, if you're going to talk about PTSD, you're talking about veterans. Yeah. And of course, veterans face incredibly high rates of PTSD, but uh, most of the PTSD we see is not military. PTSD. We're talking about childhood trauma, and as you said, none of us had the perspective. None of us knew that trauma under is the underpinnings of so many, not just psychiatric concerns, but also physical, medical, long-term, chronic disease. When the body says no, no, it was completely misunderstood. And I think that there's just a massive dissociation inside of the institution of medicine about our own trauma, about our personal and collective trauma as physicians. And the training system, uh, I was told later, was developed to mimic military training. Really, And so that made sense to me because the endless hours, the 24-hour shifts, the things that, that we learned to tolerate don't make any sense to a person who doesn't have trauma running their nervous system, in my opinion.
3: Uh, let me tell you, you guys physicians all know what telomeres are. Telomeres for the audience are DNA structures at the end of our chromosome, protect our chromosomes. And the length of our telomeres diminishes with age and with stress. And the more telomere shortening there is, the more disease, the more inflammation there is. They looked at a study of, um, of medical residents, students they're telling you're short more in a year than that of their age-related cohort. So that this is medical training. Rupa, you're an MD, you're also a woman of color. Um, what was medical education like for you? And and how did you come to realize the larger connections that we're all addressing here between individual illness and broader relationships and social conditions? <laughs>
9: Yes, I came to medicine as an artist, as a musician, so I was always very sensitive and it didn't take long to figure out how traumatizing the medical system was as a medical student. But even before that, just interacting with the medical establishment as a patient myself and seeing how unwhole I felt compared to the Ayurvedic traditions that my grandmother, who is a healer in India, used and other traditions around the world, um... And to go back to what Pamela and Jeff were both saying about the mind-body dualism of the Cartesian dualism that is so much a part of Western thought infects every aspect of our understanding of health and who we are, the self and other, the colonized and the colonizers, and these systems of thought were brought about in the time where medical education was being formalized and Europe was conquering and enslaving and extracting resources from around the world. Um, so this process of um, stitching these things back together that have been brutally severed, purpose of colonial conquest and establishing capitalist systems of which we are all traumatized by participating in a health system that is specifically capitalist. Um, Not that it's the only traumatizing health system you could be in, but it is highly traumatizing for the practitioners. That Those thought patterns were established at that time, 600 years ago. And so to understand why we are facing the levels of burnout that we are facing as physicians, we have to understand how our profession has been complicit with the medic's the missionaries and the military going together around the world to establish these systems of domination and that Mm -hmm. the institutions of our medicine are part of these systems of domination and any system of domination is going to be inherently traumatizing not only to the people who are being dominated or invisibilized whether they're people of color or even our patients um, but also to the practitioners who have to enact the, who have to sever their concern for other humans and other beings in order to participate in that system. And so that's, to me, I think the whole architecture is built on a logic of domination and therefore is inherently traumatizing. So for myself, it was my music that really connected me to keep myself outside of the system as I was going through it. But I was mentioning to my colleagues here just before we started I'm having black medical students now approach me at UCSF saying they want to drop out because it's just too traumatizing black and indigenous medical students saying, how do I go through this system that has been clearly set up through white right supremacy and how do I go through it whole without degrading myself? And that is a really hard question for me to answer as their mentor, as a healer, as a professor um, because I want to see them achieve and be part of the change but should they have to sacrifice their own spiritual health or well-being or wellness to do that? And I don't have a clear answer that it's something that they are working on. But I do have a clear answer for our need to decolonize medicine. And that is the work that I'm working on in Ohlone territory, what is now called the Bay Area with several tribal groups and also in Lakota territory, is reimagining medicine, taking the best of what Western medicine has to offer and rejecting the logic of domination. Um, and understanding where it can be useful and also where it actually is and will always be harmful and not being afraid to just throw that aside. And so I feel that the work around trauma is probably the most important avenue into this because, as Will mentioned, it touches every aspect of our lives. It's not... I work as a hospital medicine physician where... I'll be with a patient who's coming three or four times to the same, within the same month. And finally, I'll sit down with them. I'll be like, okay, tell me about your child. Tell me about what happened in your childhood. And, and invariably, there is a story of horrific trauma that has not been digested and composted and integrated. And so how can, how can, you know, we just patch people up and send them out and expect them to be doing well when we're sending them out into a world of trauma? And so this is really critical a critical conversation for us to be having.
3: Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. I want to move the conversation onwards. Thank you for that very um, articulate, uh, eloquent answer. Jeff, I want to come back to you. So your book, cured, which I usually have on my shelf here, but I just lent it to a friend of mine with prostate cancer. um, So I don't have... But you looked at people who, despite the expectations of medical prognosis, either because medical treatment has failed or because they refused medical treatment, but they got better anyway. And um, you really nailed the point that these are the people we should be studying. Like we, we just study our own successes or mistakes, but we don't study successes that are outside of our particular comfort zone. Right. So, um, and, I, and I thought that your research about how and why people spontaneously overcome terminal diagnoses, there's a lot to say about why people get sick in the first place. And it so really it,
4: does. And that's, yeah. So, so tell us what you learned there. And it so parallels your work, Gabor. I quote you all the time for one of the most important findings that I learned from these people after studying them for 18 years. The most important thing that people say when they express gratitude for the illness that they had is yeah. that it took an illness for them to wake up and realize that they needed to start taking care of themselves and stop just taking care of everyone else or just stop responding to the perceived expectations of others. And one of the things that you say that resonates at such a deep level for people, especially when they sit and really let themselves absorb it, is if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. And that is such a profound understanding of how this works for people. 85 to 90% of the illnesses that people suffer from are lifestyle related, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune illness, cardiac disease, but we treat them as if they're incurable every day. And in med school, we were taught that these have a genetic basis and that's as far as the understanding goes. But in the last number of years, we're seeing that genes, yes, they are a basis, but genes are turned on and off by lifestyle at a far higher level than we were taught, most of us in med school, I'm sure. And so, even though the people that I study recover from incurable illnesses, if we apply just a portion of what these amazing ultimate achievers did to our illnesses, to the lifestyle illnesses that our patients have, we will see a dramatic change in trajectory for these illnesses. And that's why we need to study how people heal. We don't do that. We were taught as physicians to make a diagnosis and start a medication. And at least what I was taught, we don't even study how people heal, which is crazy. So we need to open a new era in medicine. So what I'm going to ask
3: you about, before I go to the others, is, and I've talked to people that have overcome supposedly deadly autoimmune disease, sometimes even cancer. Not that I... This is not a ranting it's medical care, by the way, or medical miracles, which do exist, but I mean medical practice, but... These people that do get better, despite our worst prognostications. I asked you this, and this is my experience as well, the doctors who treat them never asked about, well, how how come you got better? Like, what is the reluctance to find out how these people did it? What do you think about that?
4: Yeah, in 18 years studying individual after individual, I have never yet had a single person say that their doctor expressed curiosity how they got better. The best ones say, whatever you do, and keep doing it because it's working. But where's the curiosity? See, this is, we got a whole mystery to a whole wilderness that we haven't mapped yet with this stuff.
3: So Pam, I'd like to c- come back to you now. You had the suicidal crisis. You were lying in bed just in full despair. And then you had some kind of a visionary experience which transformed not just your personal life, but also all your practice medicine. Can you tell us about that?
6: It was very odd. It was like a prophetic dream. I chose not to go into this too much detail with your earlier question because Mauricio introduced me with such a wonderful introduction about creating these ideal clinics. But this did come to me in a half awakened dreamlike state where I saw the country transforming and rebuilding the medical system like firefighters, police officers, doctors, nurses, patients hand in hand, like rebuilding brick by brick our clinics and our hospitals without these sort of of, I guess, no value added intermediary uh, that have come in to take such a passive income off of our intellect, blood, sweat, and tears as amazing healers, right? And so uh, leaving us with crumbs, time, economics, and everything to try to do the work that we do with patients. So what I did is somehow I felt like I appointed by the universe to like lead a series of town hall meetings with the citizens in my community. And so I led nine town hall meetings. I asked my own patients and community members to design the ideal medical clinic if they could have their dreams come true, make a wish foundation type of thing and going out on a limb there because it's not like I had any funding or anything. They could have wanted something that was unaffordable. But what I learned from reading 100 pages of testimony submitted to me over nine town hall meetings is that all people wanted were things like eye contact remove the ancillary staff and just sit with me on a couch with some pillows and a bean bag. This is the mind-blowing thing. I explained to other doctors as I've taught about 600 doctors to launch these similar practices. All people really want, so everyone's, what's the secret to a successful practice? All people really want, it's pretty simple, is an answer to their medical problems. That's whoa, mind-blowing. And then guess what? I I know you all have heard if you spend enough time just listening to the history of the patient will tell you, what their problem is and actually explain the whole solution if you just listen and have curiosity like Jeffrey was sharing. And yeah, and I've been open for 16 years with this practice actually just retired seven days ago to go full time and helping other people launch similar practices Mm -hmm. and also deal with the physician suicide crisis. I feel strange. What's been really strange for me is like being on the phone with a suicidal physician or a mother who lost their only child to suicide in medical school and then getting a phone call for like a thyroid refill or dealing with an ingrown toenail. It's hard to go back and forth from existential crisis and trauma. to, And I don't want to minimize the seriousness of a patient who can't walk with an ingrown toenail, but it was too much of a leap back and forth for me. So I'm just dealing with the system trauma. And I feel like by healing physicians from their trauma and helping them launch ideal clinics, thousands of patients will be helped.
3: What a car part. So you went from the difficult problem Curing ingrown toenails to the simple problem of preventing physician suicide. Is that what you did?
6: Uh, basically, yes. Yes, yeah. that's what I did. <laughs> I feel more comfortable here for some reason, maybe because I had a suicidal psychiatrist as a mom. I feel like I've been running a suicide helpline for doctors since I was an embryo. What can I say?
3: Absolutely. That's true for all of us. Your institute, which you're training for psychiatrists in a trauma grounded understanding of mental illness. Uh, I kind of understand what inspired you to do it, but what actually are you doing there and what kind of training are you providing and how's it being received?
8: It's uh, the most popular part of the program. We cover a wide range of topics from gut-brain connection and gut health, but what people really love is the piece about identifying subtle presentations of trauma and reprogramming the evaluation to look for these signs of trauma. And it does help to answer these unanswered questions, as Pam was saying. If you really listen, you see the clues and you know that it's there. It's not about imposing a trauma narrative on a person. It's more about listening with curiosity, uh, like Jeff was saying. And teaching people how to do that is very exciting because it it offers renewal. And it it also offers, of course, the personal experience of do I have trauma? And what was my childhood like? And so there's a deeper inquiry into the humanity of the physician through that process.
3: Thank you. There was some studies of medical students seem to indicate that they experienced their highest level of
8: empathy before they start their training. Yeah. It goes down from there. there? There's so much shaming in medical training. And... This, I'm curious if the rest of you physicians had this experience and training I had where you were trained not to, quote unquote, hurt the emergency room by allowing or not to hurt the ICU by um, having a patient who got too sick who needed to be transferred to the ICU. And there's this whole culture of if you were sick, you would work anyway. If you're pregnant, you work anyway. If you had a child who died, you work anyway. Because who's going to take your place? the 24-hour shift isn't covered by you. And there's no room for any inquiry or discussion. And there's no place for discussing what happens when patients die. And what happens when a family is so distressed that, and you're sent into the room to talk to a family with no training in that. No room. And so it hardens
3: people. Speaking of hardening, I remember two experiences from medical training. One is in first year medical physiology and they took these dogs and anesthetized them and we had to cut them open and they're these dogs with their open bellies and chests and their hearts are beating there was no practical value to that training we didn't learn anything we couldn't have learned otherwise in retrospect what it was really about was making us hardened to our own feelings you know and 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 then another thing that I remember is being a medical intern, and the resident in charge of the ward that I worked for would call me at three in the morning. And it didn't even occur to me that this is inhumane, this is. He would say he would call me about some old person with a stroke in the emergency ward that they want me to go see, who maybe was paralyzed on the left side. And this resident would say to me, there's a 92 year old dinosaur in ER who can't wave her tail to the left. Wow. This is what I spoke. And I took this perfectly for granted. You know?
6: Um, Gabor, I just want to share. I have a free gift that's in the series offered to people called Physician Betrayal, How Our Heroes Become Villains. It's purely about my experience standing up against the dog labs. I was the only one in my school of 189 people who was exempted. I actually signed the papers to drop out of medical school over that dehumanizing process. But at the last minute, the dean exempted me from the lab, so I was able to stay. And I was absolutely horrified that nobody else in my class would consider signing a petition to opt out of the lab for philosophical reasons or even support my right to opt out of the lab. And and the reason why is they were fearful for their own future and they wanted to not get blacklisted from their residency. So I think a lot of times physicians go into a self-betrayal, self-preservation mode, and that prevents us from collectively healing. And certainly, once you commit self-betrayal, you're much more likely to betray your patients, your peers, and everyone else, and it becomes a habit.
3: Absolutely. Arupa, I'd like to return to you now. a wonderful book that just came out a couple of months ago, I think. It really looks at medicine in the context of culture. And, and society and economics and history. And uh, there's some basic statistics that are inescapable, but the profession doesn't seem to draw the lessons. Like, like women are much more likely to have autoimmune disease than men, but if you're a woman of color, you're even more likely to have autoimmune disease. And uh, there's gotta be some reasons for that. And and your book is entitled Inclamed, and, and you talk about inflammation. Um, Inflammation is not an individual process. It has to do with the whole system. So can you just briefly summarize the, just the science of how society gets into ourselves?
9: Yes, this was probably the most exciting thing because I had these hunches as I was touring around the world and working with different communities. And when you go as a doctor to a community, they let you into their homes. You get to see how things work when you go with your guitar as opposed to your stethoscope. And I really got to see how social upheaval and social dynamics were generating inflammatory disease in people disproportionately. I agree, Jeffrey, that these things are lifestyle more than just genetic. We know with chronic inflammation, but we know that for most brown and black people on planet Earth, lifestyle and poor people, lifestyle is not a choice. Lifestyle is enforced around us. It's what we have to be experiencing because of the social architecture that has been created through systems of domination. And so health isn't actually even possible. So if you want to tell people to cure their cancer, but they're breathing toxic air from a foundry down the street in East Oakland, and they have police killing their children in the streets, those people are never going to be able to heal from cancer no matter how great their lifestyle can try to be because there's so much stacked against them. So if we want to see real outcomes in these diseases as physicians, as healers, as people in the medical world, we have to start getting involved in that structural change. So what I saw in the science which was fascinating was that the sum of exposures of toxic traumatic exposures, whether they are environmental, chemical, historical, even the stories that we are told as children end up shortening or lengthening our telomeres. That shocked me. So young black boys who have to have the talk about police violence have shorter telomeres than people who don't have to have that talk or black children who never had that talk. And so I think that for me, what was fascinating was the way that our social histories and lines of power are being translated into the cellular level and generating these pro-inflammatory cell phenotypes, the senescence-associated secretory phenotype. We see those created through the sum of toxic exposures, not simply just a little bit too much radiation, or maybe you got exposed to this pesticide, but actually even histories of intergenerational trauma. And so for me, sitting here in Dene territory, where I'm speaking to you from today, I'm reminded of a study that showed in First Nations in Canada, First Nations people who retained their language, so everything else was controlled for, had lower rates of diabetes. The, the cultural continuance itself was protective against not only diabetes, but suicidality of First Nations news. Yeah. So what is it that that the loss of language and the loss of knowing who we are in the world creates an inflammatory milieu in the body that can drive something like diabetes? And we can try to treat that with insulin. But what really needs to happen is people need all the things that have been severed through colonial systems need to be reattached. And that means our relationships to each other, to the entire web of life that supports us through the mind body get soil access all of these things need to be reintegrated and they have been purposefully deconstructed for and for nefarious purposes but we're at a point in history where the earth is suffering and humans are suffering our societies are suffering from the exact same root causes
3: thank you well let me put you guys all to the test here i'm gonna start with you i'm i'm coming to you i got anxiety I'm right, just feeling anxious all the time probably sleeping perhaps Complications, maybe. What kind of questions are you going to ask?
8: I think the first thing I would say is of course, you're (laughs) anxiety. You have anxiety. This is an incredibly anxiety provoking time to be a human being. And let's cover some territory of different places that can bring anxiety into your life. And so, for me, as an integrative provider, I'm thinking about the whole gamut from adverse childhood experiences which is kind of my pet peeve pet area but all the way to how much sugar are you eating and you know what happened as Rupa said what happened to your people on this planet what happened to your ancestors but it's also the sedentary lifestyle that is a major issue what medications have you been prescribed how have you been treated in your life so it's it's a it's not a, a neurotransmitter deficit model. It's more of a biopsychosocial, spiritual model. How disconnected are you? What's happening in COVID? What, are you seeing people face-to-face at all right now? So many so many different reasons why a person could be anxious and should be anxious.
3: Right? The anxiety, what you're here saying, is that the anxiety is not an abnormality. It's a normal response to right. certain life experiences. Exactly. And it's a doorway
8: into a deeper self-knowing. Thank you. You mentioned the... Uh,
3: adverse childhood experiences. Let me tell you guys a story. Three years ago, the adverse childhood experiences, for those who don't know, are these major studies published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, in medical journals around the world, in in, in, in journals of psychology and so on, were very well known. They show that the more trauma or adversity you experienced in childhood, the greater your risk for addiction, mental health issues, autoimmune disease, and so on. And they've been reproduced elsewhere. And always with the same findings. So three years ago, I was in Norway speaking at a conference. There were two other speakers I will not name them, but if I named them, you would know the names. One of them is a very well-known American psychiatrist. He 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 helped to write, edit, one versions of the the DSM. The other is a very well-known psychologist in cognitive behavioral therapy. His names would be. Them. and I mentioned the average for them over dinner. They both said, what are those? Mm-hmm. This is three years. Ago. This is how the split is. And I come to you with inflamed joints. What kind of questions are you going to ask me?
6: I'm going to ask about the social fabric of your life, your culture, your religion, what's going on with your marriage, of course, depending on your age. A lot of times, as we all know, as Jeff and Will shared, anxiety, depression, mental health issues are at the forefront of people's chronic pain. And one of the things that I like to do for people, no matter what their illness, is get them into a group visit. I feel like there's a lot of value in creating community. Mm -hmm. What I've been doing, even in retirement, is bringing my patients and community members into my backyard to sit in circles to process their anxiety. That's creating physical issues, particularly around the vaccine and the feuding around the pandemic, because people don't feel safe to even ask questions anymore. They feel like they're going to be in a guillotine with their family members, So almost like a vaccine therapist or a pandemic therapist, allowing people outside of my medical degree to just speak freely and be honored for their opinions, no matter what they are, and to try to get information from other community members in a loving, supportive way. And I feel like that actually has helped people with their physical pain and their headaches, their migraines. People have told me it's been of great benefit. So. I would invite you to a group visit,
3: Abor. Good. That's fantastic. Sometimes when I give my talks, I ask the audience, raise your hands if in the last five years you've been to a oncologist, cardiologist, neurologist, respirologist, dermatologist, gastro, any kind of anologist. So a lot of the audience will put their hands up. And then I'll say, keep your hands up if they ask you about your spousal relationship. Keep your hands up if they ask you about your childhood trauma. Keep your hands up if they ask you about how you feel about yourself. About how you very few hands Very few hands there. Yeah. And uh, I'm taking the liberty in this conversation to say more than I usually mind to. Usually I just ask questions, but this, I really think this is a discussion amongst colleagues. So I'll tell you something uh, else that I came across this week. The New York Times had an article this week about how some American physician has discovered that women who with breast cancer who are depressed die, are more likely to die or die quicker of their disease. And this is like big news. Mind, body, unity. In 1870, a surgeon called James Padgett in his textbook of surgery wrote about how depression and breast cancer are connected. It's like we keep discovering the wheat. Jeff, I'm going to come to you next. So you've learned so much from these people that you've studied mainly and so extensively. So when somebody, uh, about, about healing, so when somebody comes to you now, with either, um, uh, uh, you know, they, they have a physical, I know you're, you're not a physician, in the sense of working with medical problems, but you work with psychiatric issues, but when people come to you, and what often, I mean, imagine you must see people with physical problems, which also has a psychological component, Having learned what you've learned from these people that you've investigated so thoroughly, how does that change your approach
4: to people? Massively. I was also, I should say, for 14 years, I was the chief at an urban medical center, and okay. I was seeing medical patients. And so at the same time I was doing all this research, I was also seeing psychiatric patients during the day and then medical patients at night. And you start to realize, oh, this is the same thing. The way a person feels about themselves subconsciously or consciously at a deep level about themselves and the nature of the universe we live in has a massive amount to do with what shows up in their bodies and how they feel. And so when you sit down and ask a person, do you have stress? And they just start to just tell you, often in a cathartic way, about what's going on. And you start to realize that as a physician, we're taught to actually not pay attention to the story and to eliminate the story because we are taught to get through mm. to the underlying signs and symptoms of illness that are present in anyone with that particular diagnosis. And so we eliminate the story, and yet the story holds the key to what's really going on. Health is social. Well-being is social. And so whether it's working with psychiatric patients or medical patients, there is so much similarity and we're missing that story in our medical clinics and hospitals all over the country because we're not asking about what's really going on underneath all this. What is it that's stressful? What is it that's bothering you? What is yeah. this really about? And they often, like, like you were saying, Pamela, people know what's going on and they just haven't had a chance to say that or to have their words given back to them in a way that they can recognize that they really do know more than they realize.
3: I've talked to a number of medical people in training as I was writing my next book. And the stories of they actually took the trouble to listen to people, which, as you say, Jeff, was cathartic for people. And their symptoms actually got better. Yeah. But the trainee was criticized for taking too much time with the patient.
4: (laughs) Right. Now, my experience is it doesn't take that long to get the story. If you're trying to get the story, you can ask questions about the symptoms along the way, but the context is to get the story, and it doesn't take that long, in my experience, if people feel seen and understood. And so that, that implies something about the need to, for the person or the physician to receive some attention for development. But if you're trying to get the story and you're really trying to see what's going on, it doesn't take that long. It's just a different context and a different way of approaching the data that you need to get. Thank you,
3: Rupa. So, coming back to you again and, and the larger picture, your book is titled "Inflamed," but the subtitle—subtitles are always the most beautiful part of a uh, title, often—and your subtitle is "Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice." Hmm. You've already alluded to some of that, but when you look at a country like the United States and America is kind of interesting because it, 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 it sets the standard for the world so that um, conditions that burgeon in the United States, we can pretty much know are going to burgeon elsewhere under the impact of globalization centered around the American model. Mm-hmm. If you look at the United States, the wealthiest country in the world, and we don't have to go into the economics of it, it's got more chronic disease than most anywhere in the world. Like something like seventy percent of the population, of uh, the, uh, the adult population, has got at least one chronic diagnosis, and a significant percentage of people, something like fifty percent, are at least on one medication or another, which is incredible. Yeah. Can you set this Can you set the social picture for that? It? it can't be an accident, can it?
9: No, this is, I mean, the outcome of this sickness we're seeing is the outcome of how our world has been structured through colonial capitalism and all that implies, all that, that is carried with it, all the stories, all the, the ways of relating that are toxic that come through those systems, whether it's patriarchy or white supremacy or so many of the isms that we can look at how they structure our bodies and health. And what we talk about in the book with Deep Medicine is really taking a page from Deep Ecology. So deep ecology is the understanding that ecosystems can be vibrant and in balance and serving of themselves without being centered around human beings. It's a perspective of ecology that is followed by indigenous people around the world, that we are a part of a system. We're not the main actors or the center of a system. And deep medicine is the understanding that health can no longer be pursued as an individual, on an individual level alone, that we have to start looking at health as an emergent phenomenon of systems interacting. With other systems, whether that is social systems, ecological systems, our microbiota, our neuros and neural networks, that we even the anatomy that we're told is coming from a rigid enlightenment era fallacy that was used to subjugate the world and other people. So, if we need to evolve our understanding as healers in medicine, we have to abandon those thought patterns and really see health as an emergent phenomenon of these systems working together and that that perspective for me is when i do see patients individually as i do in the hospital and while i don't love being in hospitals. One thing I love about being in hospitals is that my patients are there for a long time and I can spend as long as I want with them. So if I want to spend two hours talking to someone at the end of my shift, at the end of my time, I can spend two hours to really go into why is this poor white woman from Alabama here with inflammation throughout her body that no one can figure out. 150 clinicians at UCSF saw this woman in her 50s. She came to us with a diagnosis of lupus. She did not have lupus. She was just totally, completely inflamed. And after her son walks in with white supremacist tattoos around his eyes, 30-something years old, sits at the bedside. I just sat down with both of them. I'm like, where are you from? What is it like where you all are from? Who's getting sick? How are people getting sick? And then the stories of the mercury in the water and the poison fish in the Tennessee River Valley watershed. And an hour of listening to these stories, no wonder this woman was inflamed. And I walked out of the room, and the son followed me, and he collapsed in my arms, sobbing in the ICU, and he said, no one has ever bothered to ask us what our lives are like and when I think of America right now the United States with all these political groups and these factions trying to pit people against each other when I was holding that sobbing man with proud Bama boy tattoos around his eyes feeling that connection of I see you I see what's hurting I understand, and it's sick, and it's wrong. That's where you understand the wisdom of the Black Panthers who are working with poor white folks. That's where you understand the power of politically organizing together to demand an end to the exploitation of our trainees so that we don't have, you're spending too much time with a patient, a feedback, but you go in spend as much time as you need to help and heal this person to help and understand what's happening so that you could be of service to your communities. So the whole system of exploitation of our trainees, the fact that they're paid just abhorrent wages and exploited for this for-profit system to run, it all needs to be reimagined so that we can truly emerge as as healers in this work, so that we can do an honor to our communities that we serve and to ourselves. Because like Pamela on the farms, so I'm working to get up farms and to liberate food from the capitalist system for communities. We spend time on the farm in circle, and I call it regenerative medicine. My farm, The farmers I work with are doing regenerative farming. but like, regenerative medicine is where I'm in circle with you, and we are working through these. Let's talk, let's talk about diabetes. Let's all talk about it together. It's a very different dynamic than the individualized, atomized, as if we are individuals. Everything about us, even ourselves with the microbiota that we now know, we don't even know what it is to be an individual when our lives are so dependent on millions of other organisms to keep us healthy and well. Even the concept of individualism needs to be reimagined. And, and um, I just think it's such a critical moment as climate collapse is intersecting with pandemic for us to be bold in our articulations and to try to get as many people under the umbrella into the circle as possible.
3: Thank you. Listen, you guys, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to get a bit technical here for a minute. Will and Rupa, you both mentioned the microbiome, the gut flora. That's something that still kind of eludes me. I do know that it's very much in the impact of kind of food, eat, the environment we live in, also the stresses that we're under, even how we deliver babies, like women who deliver by cesarean section Th- their babies will not have as healthy gut flora as children who went through the women's birth canal. Just quickly on this technical, you know, this new science of microbiome. What can you both tell me about that? Just quickly. Will, what have you found out? Is it-
8: the first thing to say about it is that these old friends is what they're referred to, these bacterial strains that, and not just bacteria, but viruses and parasites that we've literally evolved with, take the care to train our immune systems. That's mm. what they do. And if we don't get exposed to them early enough, then we're the scale is tilted toward chronic inflammation. And that makes us more susceptible to depression, PTSD, schizophrenia, autism, and so forth and so on. So what Rupa is saying is very true that the breaks in the relationships is this hallmark of disease, right? From healthy soil, the organisms in the soil, to a healthy set of uh, balanced cell lines in the immune system in the gut, to how the bacteria interact with each other in the gut. We have very limited bacterial diversity in our microbiome, in our gut, and on the order of about tenfold, according to the American Gut Project, tenfold less diversity than what we need to have healthy immune systems. So we're very much a community. We're a mobile community moving around on legs, and there's more bacterial DNA than there is human DNA in our quote-unquote individual that we are.
9: So what I've seen about the gut microbiome, thank you for that, Will. That was a great explanation, is that the, if we see inflammation as the body's response to damage, and that's how I understand it, is that it is the body's corrective in the way that the stress response corrects. Um, when there's a stress, you get the activation of these hormones to correct the stress. Inflammation is the way the body's correcting the threat of damage or actual damage to the body and the microbiota in our skin, in our in every organ, um, especially the gut, is involved in modulating that inflammatory response. And the more robust and biodiverse the gut microbiota is, the more protected we are from inflammation. The least biodiverse guts on planet Earth are people who live in the United States and urban environments. Most biodiverse guts on planet Earth are indigenous people living with their cultures intact. And those same people have remarkably low, almost negligent, negligible rates of chronic inflammatory disease. They don't get cancer. They don't get, they actually don't get age, what we call age associated hypertension, which starts when you send your kids to school in the United States and in modern industrialized countries. Six years old, you start getting hypertension. They don't have that. Their kids don't get that. They don't have that when they're older. And so it's remarkable because when you lose touch with the biodiversity, and that can happen in one generation, as shown with the colonization of the Irish travelers. So a group of nomadic people were forced into settlement their diet did not change. They ate the same exact things, but their lifestyles were forced into settlement from their nomadic lifestyles, which they've had for about a thousand years. Within 20 years, the gut microbi biodiversity decreased. And once you lose those ancestral strains, you cannot get them back. Um, and so that is critical because it shows how the forced colonization, imposing a world order, a worldview on other people, and changing the ways in which they relate to the web of life around them has catastrophic impacts that last for generations. Now, you have scientists at Stanford right now trying to rewild the gut by going and getting yadda mommy, mommy poop and trying to make a fecal transplant pill. Here, rewild your gut, take this pill. But that that shows a deep misunderstanding of what the microbiome is. It is not a pharmaceutical that you can take it is a living reflection of relationships of ecological social relationships with the world around you and so in order to transform our gut microbiota we must transform the world around us to support a healthy microbiome which means everything from eliminating toxic stress like debt student debt payday loans to to stopping to damage our soils eliminating pesticides and the fossil fuel inputs we put on our soils that actually kill the microbiome there so that our soils become less, our foods are less nutrient dense. Our soils right. don't hold as much water. So there's an amazing amount of work that these invisible organisms do for our health.
3: Thank you. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, Pam and Jeff, I'm going to return to you with sort of a single question. Um, somebody once said that if you want to create a cult, you separate people from their families, you give them a uniform a jargon that only they understand you'd sleep deprive them and you put them under authority and leaders, in other words you send them to medical school so, <laughs> so I'm going to ask the two of you finally with this conversation about relationality in mind how would you like to ch- see medical education because the, as people who have listened so far have gathered physicians are just not prepared to deal with reality the way it is so Pam and Jeff, what would you like to see change in medical education?
6: I'd really like to see us model health. I want to share a quick example of a psych resident who told me that she had only seen her infant daughter for six waking hours of her life during the first six months of her training. And so that's maternal deprivation. That's going to have long-term effects on the child. And how is she able to do these 28-hour shifts and take care of other people if she's having this sort of disastrous personal life? And I think, Gabor, you mentioned earlier, or no, it was Will, about the military origins of medical education. And I did have a medical student in the Army Reserve who told me she was less stressed in Afghanistan during active sniper fire than in medical. So these are just, I hear from the underbelly on a suicide helpline, you hear the worst of the worst. I am privileged, really understand what's going on under the radar. And meanwhile, when attending, working until his appendix bursts and he collapses, an example of a good work ethic. That's what they're supposed to do. So I guess to answer this question, I think we need to model this. Like Mariah says, Maria, just the food that we eat in hospitals. Like, how about let's not do the French fries and hamburgers. Let's get back to a salad bar. Let's let our doctors and physicians sleep. Like the said earlier, the telomeres, we're aging at six times the rate as an intern, as the general public, which can be measured on our chromosomes. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think I've made my point there with some (laughs) anecdotes.
4: Jeffrey, what do you think? Yeah, I am a firm believer that we can't give to another what we have not first learned how to give to ourselves. If we don't know how to create well-being for ourselves, if we don't know how to heal our own mental and physical illnesses, then we can't contribute to the healing of others. And so we need to change our medical system so that it can talk about well-being and invest in the well-being and the humanity of the physician. And I can tell you a story about that has to do with my own trauma. As a first year medical student, my first child was born during semester week at the end of the first semester of medical school. He spent nine days in the neonatal intensive care unit and it turns out that he had a part of his brain missing. He had agenesis of the corpus callosum and the school refused to delay any of my final exams during that period and I needed to be in the neonatal intensive care unit and I needed to take those exams and there was no, no way to do both but I had to so I did so that nine days wow. was very traumatic and that nine days is when my hair started to fall out Frankly, so that's a bit of the funny piece of it but that was, that was very traumatic and that's how we train physicians <laughs> yes they do steal themselves because they have been traumatized themselves
3: And actually, there's been studies on on stress and trauma and hair loss. And so your experience wasn't an accident. No. But what a terrible story. What a terrible thing to have to go through. Listen, uh, this is a conversation I wish we could be into every medical school at the beginning of people's trainings. I really wish we could do that. But at least we can say of ourselves that we've learned a few things through our experience and uh, we're doing our best to transmit what we've learned to other people and you four certainly are in a major way so thank you all for this conversation Uh, Zaya Maurizio if you'd like to come in now
5: Wow thank you for this transmission like it's the most intuitive thing we all know and yet it feels like the most revolutionary think you're saying that's the sad part one question that came through is as a patient what can i do to help the doctor help me like any An, advice yeah. like is a
7: doctor who's c- not as aware as you are yeah. what can you go
5: i
6: think just being direct and asking for what you want is very key Another thing I just will throw out there very quickly is that thank you letters to doctors have actually prevented suicides. Doctors have told me over and over again they save every thank you letter from a patient, even if it's one or two sentences, you literally can save your doctor's life. And when you do that, I just feel like you're creating obviously such a deep relationship and they're indebted to you and and at its core it's really a relationship and the more you can get into that Emotional, spiritual, personal context with your doctor—the more your doctor is going to be able to go to bat for you—and so make it personal, make, make it a real relationship.
3: they what sometimes is let's face it, modern medicines are a lot to offer. You know, I've had cataract surgery, and thank God, you know, and that's just a minor miracle compared to what else can be done. At the same time, I tell people <clears throat> when you go to a if you want to buy a birthday cake, do you go to a butcher shop? If you want to buy a steak, do you go to a bakery? No, I don't. Why not? Because they don't sell it there. And I'm saying the same thing with medicine. You go to doctors, go for what they can do. Just don't make the mistake of thinking that what they can do sums up everything that can be done. So you have these needs, and if you can't let them meet them to the medical system for spiritual connection for healing your psyche, for seeing the connection between your illness and your traumas, go somewhere where you can get that information. Don't put all your eggs into that medical basket. That's what I tell people often. So not to reject the medical model for what it can do, but not to think that it's in any way complete or as deep as possible. That's my answer to that. Yeah. Um, a
4: health problem is always more than a health problem it involves your relationships it involves how you feel about yourself and the universe you're living in and i tell patients they need to when they see their other doctors they need to also bring in and recognize that the doctor may have clinical experience or scientific training but the person themselves also knows a lot about what's going on in their life and in their body and needs to bring all of that to the equation and even be assertive about that yeah, wow.
2: I
9: find it's helpful. I find it's helpful when when patients give me books or like this movie. If they say, "Hey, doc, check out this movie or check out this thing," I think that it can be very informa- informative for doctors to learn from their patients. And sometimes it's just someone offering another perspective that can be helpful.
3: You're suggesting that people. You're suggesting that people educate their doctors.
9: As they do, because I do believe that patients are the experts. And I think to really claim their expertise in their, in the, in their bodies and in their stories.
3: And if, when I looked at Jeff Research, Jeff's research but also my own, the commonest denominator for healing is that people take agency for their experience and for their lives. Yes, it's Supplements, yoga, meditation, whatever else they do. But the key factor seems to be that they take charge of
8: themselves rather than become passive recipients. Of mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think I would recommend this movie to your doctor, first of all. <laughs> it's accessible. And, and yeah. I totally agree with Rupa that books, I've read so many books that my patients have given me and it's really changed how I practice medicine. Um. So that's a great one. Uh, when the Body Says No would be my first one in this vein. Gee, who wrote that one? (laughs) (laughs) I,
6: I totally agree with healthcare as an active experience. When you have a passive experience with a patient, even a payment model in which charity care, I feel like charity care doesn't really work. So what I encourage people to do is donate their time or energy if they don't have money. And so donate to each other. I have a donation basket where patients can share with one another, but still get the care that they need because it, often if you're not paying something, you know, of your time, energy, if you don't have money, you don't value what you're receiving. And I don't want anyone to take health care for granted as a passive experience.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: Wow, so much wisdom. Thank you. So beautiful. And actually, we've been contacted already by a few medical schools asking us to include the movie in their curriculum. So that is our dream come true. Hopefully, more would reach out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you all for your. Incredible work, so inspiring. Thank you, Gabor. Thank you, Pamela, Rupa, Will, and Jeffrey. Thank, thank you so much for having
1: hard. us. And thank you for listening to the Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, science and nonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, Please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAN content, available exclusively to SAN members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.